Good to be back with you guys. How are we? Good. A lot of you again here this week. Good to see you. Hey, um, I got to be honest. I've always loved serial killer movies and books and stuff like that. And uh, I've, or, I've read all of the Silence of the Lamb novels. And uh, it kind of freaked out my wife because on our honeymoon 10 years ago, I was reading Hannibal while on the beach. And that disturbed her a little bit. But uh, I'm not easily disturbed. I'm not easily offended or frightened. But I do have to tell you, I have to confess one thing. I hate clowns. All right. I hate them. I'm terrified of them. They're creepy. And so for the past two weeks, I've been curled up in the fetal position back there, um, all because of Jim and his, his deal with clowns and our whole emblem over there. I just can't even look at it because it, it, it scares me. All right. But honestly, I think one of the most terrifying things about this serial, serial killer series that we've been in is that we've been identifying things in our lives that we don't typically see as dangerous as things that are ultimately, if we embrace them, going to destroy us. And they're going to steal from us. And last week, Jim identified a couple guys in this really famous story, The Good Samaritan, we looked at last week. These two guys who passed by the guy in the, in the ditch, they were protecting their reputations, they were protecting their time, they were protecting their money, their resources. But really, if you get down to it, underneath it all, they had embraced this thing, this serial killer called pride. And that prevented them from, from two things. Number one, it prevented them from being able to understand how much God loved them. And then the fallout of that is that prevents us from being able to, to love each other very well. And that was last week's, last week's talk. Now today, we're going to look at something that Jesus is going to teach us that's going to be so... I'm just warning you, okay? It's going to be so controversial. That again, our tendency is going to be just like Jim's been describing for the past two weeks. It's going to be like light being shined in our eyes. And we're going to want to close our eyes and turn around and run the other direction. Most of us are going to immediately want to kind of run and hide. We're going to want to immediately disregard this. Immediately kind of tap out and throw in the towel. Because for, for a couple different reasons. For some of us, a lot of what I'm going to say tonight is going to be brand new information that you've never heard before. Others of us, you already think you know what I'm going to say because you already think you know what the Bible says or what God says. And so here's what I'm going to ask from, from all of us tonight. Would, would you stand in the light at least for the next 35 minutes or so? Would you stay right here and would you, even if you let go of everything I'm about to say and everything Jesus is about to say, the minute you walk out that door here in a little while, even if you let go of all of it then, would you just at least listen to it for while you're in here? And I'm not saying don't think critically about it or don't ask questions or don't even argue with me in your mind. Do all of that. I want you to do that. I'm just saying, listen, don't tune this out too quickly. Don't dismiss it. So what are we talking about today, Scott? Well, we're talking about this thing today called lust. Now, time out. Ladies, let me tell you what just happened in the mind of every guy in the room. All right. Every guy in the room had this little conversation in their mind. The second I said the word lust, it went something like this. Well, crap. All right. I knew I shouldn't have come to church tonight because for the next 35 minutes, Scott's going to make me out to look like some sort of pervert. And then she, whoever she may be, is going to have all kinds of questions for me on the car ride home. Thanks a lot, Scott. That's what just happened in the minds of all the guys. Now, the reason for that is not without, there is reason for that. Because most guys in the room, when they come to church and they hear that the teaching's going to be on lust, they immediately go, I probably should have worn a cup tonight. Because here's the thing, whenever the teacher teaches on lust, it feels kind of like getting kicked in the crotch for an hour. All right? That's what most of the guys in here are thinking. If you think it's not true, just ask them later. That's immediately what our minds go to. So usually talks on lust... And sexual sin in general are all one-sided kind of barraging attacks on men. 
And I've probably been guilty of doing that in the past. And if, if any of you have been around here very long, you know that I'm pretty hard on the guys sometimes. And you, you guys, if you ever come to the marriage ministry or the men's retreats and stuff like that, you know that I will say difficult things to men in this place. And I've done that plenty of times. Now, I want to let you know tonight, my goal is not to make all the men in the room feel bad while ignoring how, all, how this issue applies to women. My goal is not going to be to try to point out, point out all the things that we're doing wrong. My goal actually tonight is to point to what's right and to point to what's good and to point to what's life-giving. My goal today is hope and joy. Now along the way, I'm going to have to point to some really tough stuff, some real stuff, some difficult stuff, but I'm just not, I refuse to beat up men for a while and then send you home bleeding tonight. So all the men can just exhale, all right? That's not what this sermon's going to be about. And that means that, ladies, you're not off the hook tonight. Like most of the time, I think when ladies hear that the sermon's going to be on lust, they're going, good, he needs to hear this, <laughs> right? See, I think the truth is there are many ways this serial killer, ladies, is living in your house and you probably don't even know it. So, so let me start here. And I want to start with a question. And I don't think I realized how important this question was until I asked it to a room full of thousands of college kids a couple of weeks ago. I was teaching at a conference down in Denver. And, and the question I found as I started thinking more about it, the answer to this question is probably what's driving most of your life. The answer to this question I'm about to ask you is probably the explanation for most of the decisions that you and I make in our life. And the question goes simply like this. What do you think God's intentions are towards you? What do you think God intends for you? What do you think God wants for you? What do you think God desires for you? What do you think God wants from you? See, my fear is that a lot of us have this belief that God is out to spoil our fun. That God's trying to take something from us. That we have this picture of God that he's some big mean rule maker in the sky who's out to make us toe the line and make sure that we have very little joy and happiness. And I'm afraid a lot of us, let's get specific to the topic tonight, as it pertains to sex, we believe that God's view of sex is that he probably thinks it's really dirty and wrong. It's almost as if, here, here's what I think a lot of us kind of believe, whether it's subconscious or, or consciously or not. I think a lot of us think that when God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden and he put them in that garden naked and he was done creating everything and he took a break and was like, okay, you kids enjoy the garden. And God like kind of goes on a stroll for like 30 minutes and he comes back from his walk and goes, oh my gosh, what are you guys doing? Cut that out. I never intended for you two to do that. I know I put you naked together in the garden, but this was not my idea. And God's wringing his hands going, well, oh, okay, I guess if you really want to, you guys are so uncomfortable tonight. You're going to have to loosen up. <laughs> Just so you know, all right, that's not how it went down. That's not the way it works. I think a lot of us think God created sex just out of necessity for the sake of biological reproduction. What's wrong with all that is the fact that it's not true. See, here's what I'm trying to get at tonight, and this is going to be important and foundational throughout this talk. What I'm proposing is we've got to think different. 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us this. We have to take captive. Write that word, those words down. Take captive Every thought that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. See, take captive means to identify and expose and to shine light on the ways that we're thinking incorrectly and to make that thought subject to the truth. Why? Why would we want to do that? Because the truth we've been learning in this series will do what? Will set us free. The truth will set us free. And the truth is God created sex for more than just biology. Like, have you ever considered the fact that God created parts of our bodies that serve no other purpose than pleasure? 
Have you ever considered the fact that there are specifically parts of the female anatomy that serve no purpose, biologically speaking, except pleasure? Why would God do that? Why would he do that? The truth is God created sex. It was his idea. What if I told you that what God intends for you and me is joy? What if I told you that what God intends when he came up with sex was for you and I to have great sex? What if when it comes to sex, God is not trying to take anything from you? What if he's only trying to give you something? What if God, here's what I'm saying. What if God is out to maximize our joy in all things, including sex? Someone's happy about this message today. I'm so glad I came to church. Now, if that's true, if that's true, all right, if all that I just said is true, then you would have to conclude this. Any rule, any boundary, any regulation God would give us regarding sex would simply be a reflection or a confirmation of his love and concern for us. In other words, if God gives us this thing called sex and says, this is how it works best. My, my understanding of why he would tell me this is how it works best is because he wants me to enjoy it to its utmost. Parents, we know this to be true, don't we? Why do you give your kids rules and boundaries? Is it because you hate them and you don't want them to have any fun? No, it's exactly the opposite reason. So like when I take my kids to Wanaka Lake Park, maybe you've taken your kids to Wanaka Lake, it's just right over here in Lafayette. It's a really cool playground. It's got really big slides and stuff like that on it. The problem is it's right next to a lake. So, so they put this wall right through the middle of it. And when my boys go to that, go to that playground, they believe, their belief, my four-year-old and my 18-month-old, their belief is, is that, that whoever put that wall there must have been a very mean person. Because they're obviously trying to prevent me from getting to whatever's more fun on the other side of that wall. And so they immediately try to get to what's on the other side of the wall, not knowing the reason the wall is there is to prevent them from drowning. So what I'm saying is, what if God's a good dad? What if he's a good father who gives us boundaries for the sake of our safety and the sake of our joy? And what if he also knows what will steal from our safety and steal from our joy? What if he knows what will take away from that and what will destroy that? What if? And Jesus had a lot to say about this. If you got your Bibles, go to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to pick it up in verse 27. We're only going to look at like three verses tonight. And as you're getting there, it's also in your programs and on the screens. Let me kind of set this up for you. This is really early in Jesus' ministry. And he's got a ton of people following him at this point. And so one day he's got a bunch of people following him. He climbs up the side of this hill. He sits down to teach. And this becomes famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. And what we see in this sermon is basically throughout the whole thing, you can find it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is Jesus is basically taking everything that people thought they knew about God and thought they knew about how life works best, and he turns it all upside down. Turns it all upside down. He dismantles every argument and preconceived notion that they had coming into this teaching. And he was dealing with a bunch of religious people who thought that simply checking off a list of rules... And following a bunch of religious rituals equaled a relationship with God. And so what Jesus is trying to do is undo all that and point them to a better way. And he does it in a really interesting way. Look at this in Matthew 5 verse 27. This is Jesus talking. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Now stop right there, all right? 
When he says, you've heard that it was said, they all are going, yeah, we've heard that a million times because it was in the Ten Commandments. It's found in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 14. Most of the people there had probably memorized this. And at this point, as Jesus is teaching, most of the people are nodding their heads in agreement, meaning Jesus didn't have to convince anybody in his culture that adultery was a sin. He didn't have to convince everyone that having sex with someone that wasn't your husband or wife was wrong. At least in their minds, they're all going, yeah, you're right. The world would probably be a better place if everybody just slept with their wife and their husband and nobody else. You're probably right. But in their hearts, they were far from an agreement. In fact, many people in Jesus' culture looked for kind of loopholes around the law, especially the religious teachers known as the Pharisees. They were, they were notorious for having upwards of 10 to 15 marriages in the course of their life because what they discovered was what they thought was a loophole was, oh, okay, so I can, I can have sex with whoever I want as long as I divorce her first and then marry her legally. Then it's not adultery. Now, kind of set that over here for a second and contrast that with our current culture. There are certainly some things that are the same. There are also some things that are different. The difference would be that it's not necessarily true that any given group of people, everyone would just automatically agree that adultery is wrong. Or more generally speaking, which is what Jesus is referring to, that having sex with someone you're not married to is wrong. See, we live in a country where there are businesses and websites that are thriving off of facilitating what they refer to as affairs. One's popular tagline is, life is short, have an affair. It's an interesting perspective, isn't it? Leave it up there for a second. Just kind of digest that. You see the promise? You see what it's subtly saying? It's subtly saying, listen, life is short. You'll get more out of it. You'll get more joy, more pleasure if you cheat on your spouse. And that's consistent with what our culture teaches every day, is it not? Because we live in a culture that has not only kind of dabbled in, but fully embraced this thing called moral relativism. I've talked about it a bunch of times in here, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's this idea that it's what's right for you is what's right for you. What's right for me is what's right for me. What's wrong for you is what's wrong for you. What's wrong for me is what's wrong for me. We can play by different rules. Let's just all try to get along, right? You, you know what I'm talking about. And I've dismantled that a bunch of times in here, but let me be specific in this situation. What happens when what feels right for two people is actually very wrong for everybody else involved? Like, what happens if it feels right for two people who are married but not to each other to have an affair with one another, and that not only devastates wounds and destroys their spouses, but their kids and many other people in their lives? Whose version of right trumps everyone else's? Does their, their version of right, the couple who has the affair, trump everybody else's version of right just because it felt good to them? No. Here's the truth. Moral relativism sounds good, but at the end of the day, let me say this gently, it's dumb. It doesn't work. Like, a society can't even function that way. There has to be an outside objective arbiter of real truth. That puts our feelings for a moment over here and says, no, this is true regardless of what you're feeling right now. Let me, ask the, let me say it this way. Anybody in here who would say your feelings have gotten you in big trouble before? Just me. Okay. Yeah. All of us. Right? See, I don't know about you, but I'm glad there's something more objective than my feelings to base my life on. Aren't you? 
So I want you to feel this. Jesus is saying something very controversial here. He's saying that what the Bible teaches when it says having sex with someone who isn't your spouse is a sin. He's saying, listen, life is short. Don't blow up your most significant relationships for the sake of sex. That's what Jesus would say. And that's what an affair really is. Let's be honest. See, see what I mean? See what I'm saying? God's old fashioned, isn't he? God just needs to wake up and have a clue. This is 2011, Scott. Come on. And just so you know, that attitude, that's exactly what shaped the sex ed curriculum in our school system in this country. What do you mean? I mean this. The Sexuality Information and Education Council, which started in the United States back in the 60s, its first president and co-founder said this a long time ago. Look, Look at this on the screens. A new stage of evolution is breaking across the horizon. And the task of educators is to prepare children to step into that new world. That sounds good, doesn't it? To do this, they must pry children away from old views and values, especially from biblical and other traditional forms of sexual morality. For religious laws or rules about sex were made on the basis of ignorance. God's old-fashioned, he wants to spoil your fun, the Bible's outdated, and you would be an ignorant moron to think otherwise. That's what she's saying. And I had someone this week, in case you're wondering, that's not really the pervasive thought in our culture. Yeah, it is. I had somebody this week um, tell me that Bible people, people who believe that what the Bible has to say about sex is, is right or true, are ignorant to the science of sexual attraction. Meaning that... Meaning that we see animals doing a lot of things in nature and we should model our behavior off of what we see in nature. Now, I'm not a rocket scientist, all right? But there are a lot of things animals do that I don't think we should model or justify our behavior after. Like what? I've seen my dog eat poop, for example. Um, eating their young comes to mind. I mean, could we go on and on and on? But I'm just a Bible guy. What do I know? See, I'm just wondering what this new stage of evolution has brought us. What do you mean? I mean this. Take, take a look at this on the screens. So as biblical thinking and sexual practice have, have been a part of our lives... As biblical thinking has decreased and sexual practice has increased, what are the consequences that we've been left with in the middle? Like, is this, you know, emotionally and spiritually and mentally and physically? I mean, is this the part of the sermon where I should start recounting tons of statistics about STDs and the connections between pornography and sexual abuse and scary with connections between teenage promiscuity and teenage suicide and so on? Should I do that? Because I could. But I'm not gonna. Why not? Because let's all be really honest. We know. Look around. How many of us are suffering from the fallout of that? Whether it was our own decisions or somebody else's decisions. If we're honest, we can look around at the world that we live in and we can say emphatically, there has to be a better way than this. There has to be. And there has to be a better question to ask than than the ones we've been asking. And I would say one of those would be this. Is it possible that God, as the author and designer of sex, actually knows how it works best? Could that be true? I mean, keep that in mind. Because I'm telling you, if you've already read ahead, you know what I'm talking about. Jesus is about to say some stuff here that's going to sound totally absurd. 
It's going to sound so outrageous. He's going to push the envelope. So let's just go ahead and get it out there. Look, look at the next verse in verse 28. But I tell you, in other words, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See what I'm saying? It's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's kind of out there. But I think we can easily miss what Jesus is actually doing here. Don't, don't miss it. What Jesus is doing here is actually raising the bar. He's elevating the value that we put on one another and the value that we put on on sex. He's saying, you guys, you're not valuing each other the way you should. You're not valuing yourselves the way you should. And you're not valuing sex enough. He's raising the value of men and women and sex. He's saying, listen, you thought it was just about not having sex with your neighbor's wife or husband. What I'm telling you is this. If you lust after them, if you take them, if you have them in your mind, you're just as guilty. You're doing just as much damage. And that idea, that teaching causes a lot of people to freak out, including probably some of us in this room. This makes a lot of people feel like God must be just an absurdly mean person. He's picking on us for things we can't even control that are perfectly natural. God must be out to spoil our fun. What could be more harmless than our thoughts? Thoughts never hurt anybody. I mean, is there anything more harmless than our thought life? Take Jesus out of the equation for a second, all right? Just just think about that on our own for a second. Are thoughts harmless? Are they? Does what we think about matter? I think it does for one simple reason. Our thoughts shape our actions whether we like it or not. It's just that simple. What we think about, what goes on on the inside, inevitably, in some form or fashion, ends up where? On the outside. And Jesus was really smart. He knew this. That's why he said in Mark 7, 21 through 22, look at this. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. In other words, what that means is this. No one just up and sleeps with someone else's husband. Even the most spontaneous act has had a lot of thinking going on out of control underneath the surface. A lot of thoughts that were never taken captive going on on the inside. Ask anyone in here who's ever, who's ever cheated on a spouse. And they will tell you that they cheated in their mind and they cheated in their heart long before they ever physically had sex with someone else. How do you know, Scott? Because I've had two great friends in my life who've done that. Two really close friends in my life who've cheated on their spouses, blown up their whole lives, their jobs, their families, all of it. And both of them sat and looked at me with tears and said the same thing. Scott, it all started with my mind and my heart. I spent a lot of time thinking about it long before I ever did it. So what Jesus is saying tonight might be controversial, but you need to hear this. It's true. It's true whether we like it or not. And Jesus is what he's doing here is he loves us enough to identify a serial killer here that a lot of us have not only ignored, but in fact, we've nurtured. And it's this thing called lust. What is lust? Let me tell you what it isn't first. All right. So take a little bit of pressure off here. Let me tell you this. It's not noticing someone's attractive. That's not what lust is. It's not noticing when someone walks in. They're pretty. He's handsome. That's not lust. It's not recognizing that you think someone's cute or hot or whatever. It's it's not even a passing thought. 
It says this. It says, Jesus says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully. That word look literally translates a long, continual stare. In other words, to take it all in. And it can mean several things, all right? There's a lot of substance here, okay? It can mean to look at someone who's not your wife or ladies, not your husband, and to entertain the thought of having sex with them so much so that your desire for them increases as you think about it. Here's what it ultimately is. It's objectifying someone in such a way that you desire them only for the purpose of serving your desires. You don't see them as a person. And of course, that's a struggle for, for us as men in a very visual, as we're very visual creatures in a multimedia world that continues to barrage us with images in every form on a daily basis. It's a struggle. But it also would apply, ladies, to something called romantic fantasies. What's that? Wondering what life would be like with him. Wondering what life is like with him. Picturing you and him together on vacation with a family, and by the way, he's not yours, and you're not his. He's someone else's, and you're someone else's. It could also mean this, and this is really interesting. It also could mean looking at someone in such a way that you're trying to cause them to lust after you. Presenting yourself in a way that will cause someone else to lust after you. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I got, I got verification from every woman that I ran this by that this is true. Women do this more than men. In fact, let's say it in the positive sense, all right? Here's what I'm saying, okay? So, um, guys who are married, we try to have a sexy look. What I mean is this, like, we would like to think that there's a look that we could deliver to our wife that would make her want to stop and have sex with us in that moment, all right? We, we try, you know? Seeing it's just embarrassing. It doesn't work, all right? It goes really, really bad for us, all right? But I'm telling you, my wife can look at me in a certain way. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. It does, okay, you know? Now, it, if it worked the other way around... Nothing would get done in the world, right? So thank you, God. That's a gift, okay? What I'm saying is this. Ladies, you're masters of this. You can give a glance. You can do a look. You can do a thing with your eyes, your lips. You can flip your hair, and you know exactly what you're doing. And Jesus is saying when you do that to the guy at the office who's not your husband, that's wrong. So since I've already made you mad, let me make you more mad, okay? Okay. <clears throat> this would seem to have some ramifications on what you wear, wouldn't it? Here he goes. He's going to tell us to dress like Amish women. I knew this would happen. (laughs) No, I'm not. I'm not. All I'm going to give you is this. This verse would seem to indicate that it would actually be appropriate to ask a simple question when you're getting dressed. And here it is. I'll put it on the screen. You can write it down. What am I trying to cause men to think about when I wear this? What do I want men to think about when I wear this? And be honest with the answer. And if you think the answer can pass through the filter, then go for it. And can I just speak for some guys in the room that are trying, trying desperately to take Jesus seriously on this? It would be really helpful if you would at least ask the question. Be really helpful. There's a lot of guys that are trying not to nod right now because they want to. What other ramifications would come out of this verse? A lot. It seems that this verse would have ramifications on the biggest business in our country, wouldn't it? 
You know which business I'm talking about, right? The one that grosses more revenue than all four major sports combined and more revenue than the three major television networks combined and the one that, that we spend more on every year than we do on foreign aid to the tune of $13 billion a year. You know what I'm talking about. Pornography. See, Jesus would say pornography would not only qualify as sinful because the obvious point of porn is lust, but Jesus would say that's just deadly. What do you mean? Well, it's deadly in a lot of ways. One of the ways is this. It, it totally sets unrealistic expectations, does it not? Have you ever considered the fact that we have a generation of really young boys who are growing up with expectations of women that aren't even real? See, women cannot possibly compete with airbrushed, photoshopped, digitized images of women. That's just not fair. There was a study done recently that reported there are four basic aspects to all heterosexual pornography. In other words, there's a formula to it. It's really, really simple. You want to make, some, you want to make pornography, you're going to communicate four things. Here's the four things all heterosexual pornography is trying to communicate. Number one, all women want sex from all men all the time in all kinds of ways. Number two... Women really enjoy whatever any man does to them sexually. Number three, any woman who doesn't fit the stereotype of one and two can be changed through force and intimidation. Don't tell me it's not dangerous. Number four, women are a tool for pleasure. They're not really a person. They're just mere parts. Let me ask you a question, ladies. Is any of that true? Is any one of those statements true? No. Let me ask you another question. Who says? On what authority do you say no? Let me answer the question. God does. God says. What I'm trying to communicate is I want you to see it. I want you to feel it. I want you to know. I want this to wash over you. You have a defender and a God who says you're created in his image and commands men not to objectify you. He's the one who says at the same time, I have to say this. Porn is no longer just a guy thing. One in three people who visit pornographic websites now are women. And more and more women are doing all kinds of things sexually, including cheating on their husbands more than ever before. And as I'm kind of studying this week, I'm going, "Why, why is that? What is that? What's different now? What's going on? And so I kind of posed the question to some of the ladies on our staff that are in our counseling department. And they sent me back these thoughts. One of the ladies responded this way. I'm going to put it on the screens because I thought this was amazing. Listen to this. She said, women are seeking to get their sense of value from men and how men view them. And this desire may rule over their lives. Women are often asking themselves, am I attractive? Am I captivating to someone? Am I cherished and desirable? Women may start with just wanting the attention and belonging that they get from a man, and that may progress to acting out sexually in order to create a greater bond and to feel sexy and captivating. All of a sudden, some things for me as a a man started to make some sense. Because there's a lot of things about women that are a total mystery to me, and I have no illusion that I'll ever figure it all out, all right? But one of those is I've not ever been able to figure out why ladies like to watch shows like The Bachelor. Like, you're going, what, what are you talking about? No, I'm serious. Like, I've never been able to figure that out. Because, like, if you took it from reality TV and put it in real life, what you have is a, a man with a harem, right, who are competing to be his sex partner. Or maybe even, if she's lucky, his bride. If that was not on television and happening in real life, 
you would condemn it as demeaning to women and barbaric. But because it's on a network, we set our DVRs. I've never been able to get it. And so I was asking my wife about this the other night. I just couldn't figure it out. And so she and one of her girlfriends got together and they kind of they helped me get ready for the sermon. And they said, listen, Scott, I think it's this. I think shows like that connect with women's desire to be chosen, to be pursued, and to be picked out of the crowd amongst all the other ladies. Oh, that makes sense. So even if it's not the real thing, it taps into a version of the real thing. Because I've always wondered why when I'm checking out at King Supers, why every magazine has the same type of headline every week. I can tell you right now, I haven't been over there in a couple days, but I can tell you right now, the headlines will be something like this. Four ways to drive him crazy, ten sex positions he'll love, four ways to make him jealous. But what I find sad about this whole thing is that everything is so centered on him. Him. Ways to please him, captivate him, keep him, satisfy him. But ultimately, the tragedy reveals so many women finding their identity in the wrong him. And it reveals one of the many consequences of sin in our world. The fallout of sin in our world is this. Not the least of which is that men will tend to rule over and dominate and use women. And women will tend to seek to find their value in men. And it's a vicious cycle. And lust only feeds into that vicious cycle. So what do we do? How do we deal with this thing called lust? And please understand, I can't be exhaustive about this tonight. There's not enough time, but... First of all, we have to recognize it as the killer it is, as opposed to protecting it and nurturing it. What do you mean? I think you know what I mean. I mean, if it's true that lust will kill and steal and destroy like any other serial killer would, then the truth is we have to get rid of it, right? An old author said it this way, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Jesus said it this way. Look at the next couple of verses and this is going to sound extreme. Listen to this. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Is Jesus trying to advocate for us cutting off parts of our body that are involved in this type of sin? I hope not. All right. I think not as well. In fact, Jesus would often do this. He's speaking in what's called hyperbole to make a point. What Jesus is saying is something we know to be true. Just put it in a different context. You heard of Aaron Ralston? Aaron Ralston was the the mountain climber who got his arm pinned against the rock face by a boulder weighing about 500 to 1,000 pounds. And he stayed there for for about five days before he finally realized that he was going to have to cut his own arm off. And I watched some videos of him the other day kind of recounting that story. And he recounts how he was so desperate. And he realized that desperate times were going to call for desperate measures. And he recounted the pain and the agony of breaking both both bones and then severing through tendons and muscle. All of that. Nerves. The whole nine yards. And he's recounting all of it. But you know when he got the most emotional? When he recounted the moment when he realized he was free. That overwhelmed him. That sense of... I'm free. Jesus is saying this. Lust is a life and death issue because lust is a serial killer, which means you have to be willing to go to extreme measures. And the truth is attacking this problem for a lot of us is going to feel exactly like cutting off an arm. It's going to be that painful. It's going to be that hard. It's going to be that difficult. But at the end of it is this thing called freedom. 
So what would that look like? Let me say it this way. I'm not a proponent of legalism when it's used to project rules on other people. But I'm a big fan of personal legalism because you know yourself really well. Does that make sense? What I mean is this. Okay, so like, so like in our country, it's not wrong for somebody who's over 21. It's not a sin for somebody who's over 21 to drink alcohol. And if somebody tries to project that on me, Scott, you shouldn't drink alcohol because I say so, that's not valid. But if someone chooses not to drink alcohol because they know their own weakness, you know what you call that? Wisdom. That's called wisdom. What's that have to do with anything, Scott? It, okay, play it out this way. There's nothing sinful about owning a laptop or an iPhone. It just may not be wise for you to have one. There's nothing sinful about being on Facebook. It just may not be wise for you to be on there, especially considering the history you've had of chatting with him. There's nothing sinful about going to that coffee shop. It just may not be wise for you to go there because of her. What I'm saying is this, if you had a serial killer in your house, you probably wouldn't invite him to sit down for dinner. You don't feed a serial killer, but that's exactly what a lot of us do with our lust. So let me ask you this, what would keep you from doing any or all of the things that I just mentioned? What would keep you from coming down tonight and talking to somebody on the prayer team? What would keep you from making an appointment to see one of our counselors? What would keep you from coming to shift next Friday night? And I can only come up with one answer, it might be familiar pride you remember that from last week jim said it would be the root of all the other things we looked at in this series and you know what he's right what would keep you from getting rid of your laptop pride what would keep you from unfriending that person on facebook pride and perhaps the most sad thing about when we allow our pride to get in the way is that we start settling for so much less than what god has for us What we ultimately are longing for is intimacy and joy and connection and to feel significant. And we settle for all these cheap imitations that ultimately can't deliver and turn out to be serial killers in disguise. See, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Scott, you can't seriously expect me to not have sex again until I get married to someone. Or you can't expect me, Scott, to delete all my files or to stop chatting with that guy online. Listen, I don't expect you to do anything. I'm just asking questions. Questions like this one. How's that working for you, by the way? Like, how's your strategy towards this thing called sex working for you? How's it turned out? And I just wonder if maybe God has a better strategy. But that's between you and Him. What I think is this. I think what we're all ultimately longing for is what Adam and Eve originally had in the garden before sin entered the world. Do you know the number one way the Bible describes Adam and Eve is, is two, two words, naked and unashamed. And naked meant way more than physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually vulnerable. They were one with each other and they had nothing to hide. And that's what we all long for, but we all settle for far less, just like Adam and Eve did. And the first thing Adam and Eve did when they sinned, do you remember? They ran away, they hid, and they covered up. And I think that describes a lot of us in this room. We're hiding and we're ashamed. And I can't think of any struggle in life that causes us to hide in our shame any more than the one we've been talking about tonight. So I'm just asking tonight, what if we stepped into the light? What do you think you would find there? 
Do you think you would find condemnation or do you think you would find freedom? What if we got honest instead of running in fear and held on to this truth? What do you think would happen? What do you think God's intentions are towards you? Do you remember this verse? We've been looking at it throughout this whole series. Look at it again. If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If we hold on to this truth instead of letting go of it the minute we walk out this door, if we'll stand here in it for a bit and let our eyes adjust to the light, what does Jesus say will happen? He says you will be set free. And interestingly enough, just a few chapters later, Jesus reveals that truth is more than just his teaching. He says this, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, there is truth, and here's what I want you to hear. Truth has a name. Truth is a person, and his name is Jesus. And it's only in him that we can truly be free. God wants us to be free, to be unashamed, to not be held down anymore. The truth is a lot of us are lost, and Jesus says, I'm the way. A lot of us have embraced lies, and Jesus says, I'm the truth. And a lot of us feel dead and forgotten and hopeless, and Jesus is pleading, saying, I am the life. And a lot of us have never felt more distant from God than maybe we do in this very moment. And Jesus is saying, you can draw near to him through me. The truth is this. I say this with all the love I can muster. If you think you can find what you've been looking for apart from Jesus, you never will. Because the truth of the matter is this. Whether you realize it or not, what you've been looking for all along is Jesus. It's who you've been looking for. Some of you right now, even going, Scott, that, that, okay, I believe you, but what, what does that really look like? Where do I start? Where do I begin? And here's where we begin. We begin by being honest, stepping into the light and quit hiding. Well, what thing am I supposed to stop hiding? Let, let me leave you with three really disturbing questions that might just keep you up tonight. If you're spending time hiding it, that's what I'm talking about. If a lot of your effort is put into keeping this away from people so that they don't know, that's what I'm talking about tonight. If you're spending a lot of time managing it, in other words, you can't keep up with all the lies and you spend, you're exhausted because you're just trying to manage this thing that's destroying you from the inside out. That's exactly what I'm talking about tonight. And if you're spending all your time, maybe even right now, minimizing it, justifying it, Right now, you've been having an argument with me all night long in your mind going, Scott, this is not that big of a deal. It really, really isn't. It's not a big deal. I don't know why you're making such a big deal out of it. That it is exactly what I'm talking about tonight. That is exactly what needs to be brought to the light. And I can promise you this. When you do, if you do, you're not going to find condemnation. You're going to find help and you're going to find love. Let's pray. Father, I come before you, and God, this has been hard tonight. Because the truth of the matter is, a lot of us in this room are living in the middle of the fallout of what this serial killer has done in our life. And we just are so tired. We don't want it anymore. But we feel too weak to even fight. And so, God, would you give us strength that we didn't think we had? And would you draw us to your light? And would you put people in our life that we can be honest with? And would you give us those first steps to freedom tonight through your son named Jesus? It's in his name we pray.
Amen.